Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with the thrill, Will the Thrill Clark. On the face, Will Clark, first and second and two outs. Clark, deep down the left field line, Anderson to the wall. It's a home run. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast today in the program. We've got a six-time All-Star. He hit 310 times in his career and had one of the sweetest swings of his generation. The number was retired by the San Francisco Giants in 2020, and he's simply known in the baseball world as Will the Thrill. Ladies and gentlemen, Will Clark. Will, thanks for coming on the program. Uh, my pleasure, Brad. How's everything with you? Everything's good. Everything's good. You're back in Baton Rouge, huh? Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, kind of my home base operations. Uh, when I do have to travel for the ball club, I uh, I leave out of here. And uh, usually I uh, have to go to the West Coast. Uh, we only have one minor league team now on the East Coast. It's uh, Richmond Flying Squirrels. And so for the most part, I... Uh, I make it a habit of, of flying out to the West Coast. Very cool. And that's your working for the San Francisco Giants. All right, I want to start uh, right off the top. 303 career average. Uh, this is something I hold in high regard. Uh, there are just not that many guys that do it. And recently, I've had uh, Polly Molitor on the show, Edgar Martinez, Larry Walker. They're 300 career hitters, and I always make a point how awesome that is. And I, and I don't think in today's age, it's appreciated as much as it should be. I hit 300 a couple times. That's one thing, but, but doing it for a career, it's, it's really something me as a, just an ex player that played a long time. I see that. And that's something special. People don't know how tough that is. Tell me a little bit about that. And how much did you pride yourself on that? Well, it's, it's, it's definitely tough, uh, you know, cause you, you know, you have to do it pretty much every day and you gotta be in the lineup against everybody's number one, number two, number three. So, you know, there's no, there's no time to take like an off day. Um, but you know, the, the one thing that, you know, at the end of the day, you feel so vindicated and so proudful for, you know, the job that you put in and, uh, you know, going to work and, and getting the job done. Yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. Um, let's go right into your swing. Now, I, I got to admit it. You're a few years older than me, so I was kind of that kid growing up when you were finishing. I was getting into high school uh, when you were finishing your career at Mississippi State. But the Will Clark swing, uh, it's a classic. It's kind of one of those swings that everybody, especially from our generation, knows about. Oh, Will, he had that sweet swing. Now, being right-handed, different ball game, as you know. I remember a good buddy of mine that I played with for a lot of years, Johnny Olerud. We'd always talk hitting, you know, in between pitching change, first base, second base. And Johnny would ask me questions. What do you think about it? I said, Johnny, I can't talk to you. You're left-handed. Everything's breaking into you, except for the rare occurrence. <laughs> he's got a face of, you know, he's got a face of Randy Johnson or something like that. But I'll tell you, I tried it in high school. I'm like, I'm going with the will swing from the right side. And I, it, against lefties, 
I could do it because I could get out there and just kind of hang and wait for that ball if it was a breaker ball is coming to me. I tried it against a tough righty with a with a tight slider. I just that that front side leaves me every time. Tell me about that swing and your thoughts of it, because it's very unique. It's something not too many people do. And and for those of you who listen to the Boone podcast, these are things everybody just can't have will swing. It looks pretty, but there's a balance mechanism that, that holds true with the swing. All of us can't just glide because we'll go forward. Next thing you know, we're jammed. You have to have that unique ability to stay almost hanging in the air without letting that front side leak. Talk about your swing a little bit. Where did it come from? Well, I, uh, you know, I was, I was a stand on top of the plate bear and whale guy uh, in high school. And uh, there was a gentleman down here that uh, had won the batting uh, crown uh, for triple a for the Pawtucket Red Sox. And his name was Barry Butera. And he started doing some, some like little clinics. And so I went to Barry and, and Barry saw my swing for the first time. He says, he says, you know, we got something to work with here. He said, but you know, you need to sort of kind of trust me here and back off the plate and close up a little bit. And he said, what that'll do is that'll, you know, um, you know, get you more to the middle of the field. Uh, you can drive the ball the other way, stuff like that. And he goes, now you got to remember this. He said, you know, I was in the red tie. Red Sox organization, so I'm getting all of this from like Ted Williams, like secondhand. So, um, you know, I'm getting information from Ted Williams thirdhand. So I think that uh, I'm going to buy into this program and backed off the plate, closed up, start going back through more through the middle of the field, and it was like overnight success. And uh, after that, what I did was I just tinkered with little things to do with timing and uh, you know getting the, the bat head out there in front to catch catch good fastballs and breaking balls and uh, my hitting instructor at that time for five years before he became my manager was Dusty Baker so between getting Ted Williams advice third hand and getting Dusty Baker's first hand I want to about, hear about Will Clark as a kid you grew up in in Louisiana you grew up a big Royals fan from what I from yeah. what I gather uh, tell yeah. me about your childhood. Uh, you know, I was, I was pretty much your, your regular kid. Uh, you know, I love, I'm an outdoorsman. So I love to hunt and fish. My dad was, was that way. And, uh, I went everywhere with him and then, uh, you know, started playing baseball when I was eight, I guess, just like kind of everybody else in the neighborhood and really kind of fell in love with the sport. Uh, it was something that, that came to me pretty quick. And I just stayed with it. And then all of a sudden you look up and you're in high school and you're having a lot of success. And then right after that, then you're, you know, in college, you got drafted, all that sort of stuff. And you go, man, that was kind of a little whirlwind ride right there. And, uh, you know, I really, really enjoyed, you know, growing up and playing baseball. Uh, you mentioned that, uh, you know, I was a Royals fan because we really didn't have, uh, too many, uh, teams on on uh, tv back then and uh, one of the ones that we did have uh was the royals and so i became a big george brett fan he was uh one of my idols and then uh another guy too uh even though he was from a different uh team was uh mike schmidt uh i really enjoyed watching both of those guys and you know being a first baseman everybody's like you know why were you looking at third baseman and i said because 
those guys at the time, they were probably the best hitters in major league baseball. And, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of fun to, uh, to, to follow them and try to emulate them. You went to Jesuit high school, um, senior year, you're drafted in the fourth round by the team you grew up following the George Brett's Royals. Um, but you pass it up and, and you end up going to Mississippi State. Did, did, you, did you think about signing or were you always going to go to school? No, I, uh, I seriously thought about signing. Um, the thing that I wanted the Royals to do was since I was going to pass up, you know, pretty much a full ride, uh, you know, in college, I wanted them to, to pay for my, uh, you know, tuition. At, at some point and uh they would not do that and so that's kind of where the the negotiations broke down and uh you know i went on to mississippi state and then uh three years later uh was was one of the uh you know top picks in the country and signed and went off to play my pro ball and when you're at mississippi state 84 comes to mind uh, it was that first in 1980 uh we had boycotted the Olympics, but 84, I think it was an exhibition sport, but it was a pretty who's who, uh, maybe not at the time, but who's who of college baseball. You had, you had Big Mac on the team, BJ, who, who ended up being the number one pick. We'll get to that a little bit later. Barry Larkin, uh, Bobby Witt, Corey Schneider. Uh, tell me about that 84 Olympic experience. I got to play in a Pan Am Games years later. We got to go over to Cuba. It was pretty cool. But I want to hear about uh, your experience in, in that eighty on that eighty four team. You know what i uh, I went and tried out for the Olympic team, and uh, you know I, I just thought it'd be so cool, you know, running out on the field and having USA on your chest. And I was, was able to uh, make a cut um, at a at a local tryout, and then after that, uh, after my sophomore season at Mississippi State, then uh, all of the guys for the Olympic team met in Louisville, Kentucky, and there were 44 of us there, and they cut from 44 down to 25, which is what we traveled with. And then uh, we went on, a, as you said, it was a, a demonstration sport. So we weren't going to be a medal sport, but we did receive medals, and uh, we went – on a barnstorming tour. And I mean, a huge barnstorming tour. We, we went to like, I want to say it was like 30 something cities in 32 days and played 36 games, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, we, we played the uh, Taiwanese, we played the Japanese, we played the Koreans, uh, while we were on this barnstorming tour. And then by the time we got to the five more people uh so we went down from 25 down to 20 and uh then all of a sudden when we got to the olympics it was it was pretty interesting uh you i actually had a chance to face some of the guys that i faced uh believe it or not later on in pro ball uh ramon martinez was uh was pitching for the dominican republic so you know i had a chance to face him and then some of the guys uh from the japanese team went on to become stars over there that's that's funny. You you mentioned Ramon. I remember Ramon. You know, with with Pedro and the career that he had, uh, a lot of guys, a lot of fans, you know, forget Ramon gets overlooked. I remember early in my career facing Ramon Martinez, and I'm telling you, he was one of those guys. On a given night, he could have lived with a fastball only, 
And and that was just my interpretation of that. But but that's interesting. That's a blast from the past. You know, everybody always talks yeah. about Pedro, but Ramon yeah. was, was pretty good in his own right. Yo, definitely, definitely. And uh, you know, back in the back in the eighties, you know, it was it was he and uh Hershauser were pretty much the uh, front end of that rotation. You know, Ramon was, was right there in the middle of it and uh, like you said, he there was some days where he had an absolute electric fastball and, and he could he could almost be like a Mariano Rivera almost and just pitch with that one pitch. But um you know, as as you well know, in the, in the major leagues, you, you're going to have to come up with some different stuff here and there. So, all right. So you mentioned uh, so '85. We get to the draft. Uh, you're the second overall pick in '85, and uh, a lot of historians, you know, a lot of the pe- the people in the press, they say it's one of the greatest draft uh, classes ever. Uh, you know, you had Palmero and and Surhoff and Larkin. That was Bonds's year. Uh, Greg Jeffries, the, the very heralded that particular. The one that that stands out to me that's interesting because now, once again, I'm playing that guy that I'm five years younger than you, so I grew up watching you guys in college baseball, and I was fascinated by it. He ended up having a decent major league career, but college he was just kind of the he was kind of the beast amongst amongst beasts, and that was uh, Pete Incavilia. Talk to me yep. about him, and in college. I mean, he was hitting 50 homers in a college season. And I know that they always said, I never played at Oklahoma State. I was a USC guy. We never got out that way. They always said it was a band box. I said, I don't care how big of a band box it is. You still got to get it up 50 times. <laughs> talk, talk, talk to me about that a little bit. Was was that just me being a kid watching him going, wow, this Peter Cavillia is a man, you know, he's a man amongst men. Or, or was he well, just you know, that? You put it, you put it perfect. You know, it's like, you know, yeah, you might play in a band box or whatever, you know, it might be an airport, whatever, but like you said, you still got to hit the damn thing. And, uh, you know, to put up the kind of numbers that he put up and then, uh, you know, right after him or right at the same period of time was, uh, Robin Ventura, you know, they had, they had pretty unbelievable careers and, uh, we didn't have a chance to play, uh, those guys, until we got to the World Series. Um, so when I got into the College World Series, I did get a chance to uh, to play against uh, Pete Incavilia in, in Oklahoma State, and we actually wound up beating them in uh, game one of the uh, the World Series that year in, in 85. Uh, had had uh, Jim Abbott on the program and, and Phil Nevin, former winners of the Golden Spikes, uh, you won the Golden Spikes Award for for those listening. That's the most outstanding amateur uh, baseball player in the country. Uh, how's that stack up to to things in your career? You know, as as far as as far as the Golden Spikes Award goes, I mean, you know, from an amateur standpoint, you know, it, it doesn't get any better than that. I mean, that's that's what you that's what you go out there to do is to be, you know, as good as you can be, and uh, you know to to win that award on, on the stage that, that we were on. And not only that, to, to play against the kind of competition that we played against was, was pretty fabulous. Uh, you know, from an amateur standpoint, that's my biggest award by far. Um, you know, professionally, you know, you have other awards, but, uh, yeah, amateur wise winning the golden spikes was, was the epitome. 
She's signing 85. You're like, in, you know, I was, I was, I, I do a little research before I do all these podcasts and, and uh, you're like in the minor leagues for a minute. Cause uh, all of a sudden, yeah. all of a sudden you debut, your debut is in 86 with the giants. And uh, th- this is pretty cool. And I didn't know this, but now I do. First AB, you take Nolan deep. I mean, yeah. Yeah. A lot, you know, there's been some people that have gone deep their first at bat. It's pretty cool. It's kind of an anomaly. It doesn't happen. You know, I got to hit my first at bat. I, I was pretty excited about that. But to go deep is one thing. To go deep against Nolan, uh, quite something else. Tell, tell me about that debut, how cool that was. <laughs> you know, that, that's unbelievable. You know, you go in, you know, to face a guy like him and, you, you know, you're Everybody, I don't care who it is, they all got the goosebumps. And uh, you know, I I come up there at a home plate, and you know, you look out on the, on the mound. There's Nolan Ryan, you know, the Express, and uh, it's like, oh my God, uh, you know, <laughs> Mississippi State wasn't that long ago, man. It sure been a quick ride, and uh, he actually did me the best thing he could have ever done. First pitch, he threw me a breaking ball. And uh, it was a strike, and I actually saw it pretty good. And I was like, I was kind of giggling to myself. And the catcher looks up, goes, "What are you laughing at?" And I go, "I go, he's throwing me curveballs." And uh, the next pitch was a high fastball up and away. He missed with it. I saw that one pretty decent. And then the one-one fastball was just right there. And when I got it, uh, you're in the Astrodome. It went out of center field in the Astrodome. You don't ever think you're going out of center field in the Astrodome. And I grounded third base, you know, touched home plate. Everybody's going crazy in the dugout. And, uh, you know, sort of pointed to my mom and dad up in the stands. And I was sitting there uh, in the dugout, and just this calm came over me for whatever reason. And I looked at Chili Davis, who was sitting next to me, one of my veterans, and I go, he's going to drill me next time up. He goes, oh, hell yeah. And uh, I was on the way up to the plate the second at bat. He was in his windup, and I was almost all the way to the ground. So I'm going to hang in there for that one. Yeah, it's funny because that's that's kind of how it was. You're right. I got drilled my my the first time I faced Clemens. He flipped me. Ended up hitting me in the head. A glancing yeah. blow. Uh, and you don't know what to do kind of it's like i just got here i gotta be a man and go out and beat his ass but at the same time i just got here and that's clemens <laughs> like like you said that's no one right i just got here i took him deep what you know what do you do but that's how the game was yeah. back then it, you know i i find it uh so on point when you when you walk up to the plate and you said the catcher's asking you, what are you giggling at? That's how catchers talk to you when you were a rookie. That's just the way yeah. it was. And that's the yeah. th- that's kind of the atmosphere. We came into the big leagues. And that was the way. It's speak when spoken to and earn your stripes. And then you can kind of let your, you know, spread your wings a little bit. But uh, it, it's kind of changed. We'll get to that a little bit later in the, in the program. But uh, it, it's changed quite a bit here in 2021. So your debut – Nolan, uh, 86, you end up hitting 287. That's pretty good for, for your rookie campaign. But 87 is when you have your first full season. You hit 308, 35 jacks, and you drive in 91. That's kind of when now people know Will Clark's here. Um, 
how about after that 87 season? Did you feel, did you feel that, hey, now I'm here, now I'm kind of established? Well, you know, after that 87, um, you know, it was, it was kind of, hey, look, you know, I've been putting in a lot of work here and the work's starting to pay off and I need to stick with it. And, um, you know, the, the 86 season was kind of interrupted. I, I, I broke an elbow, uh, my rookie year. And so I had to miss like two months of the season, but, uh, it also was, it was a great learning lesson because, you know, while I was on the DL, I had a chance to, you know, talk to a lot of, a lot of my veterans and, and then also, you know, pay attention to the game and kind of learn from, not only my mistakes, but also their mistakes. And, uh, it, it really, really helped me out later in my career. And so for me personally, um, you know, 87 was, was really good. I was all over the lineup that year. Uh, I, I hit lead off for a month and a half cause our lead off guy broke a finger. Um, so I hit lead off for a little while. Then I dropped down to number seven and then I'd float around in the middle there too. So, you know, to, to, get the kind of numbers that I got basically out of the seven slot, uh, did kind of put me on the map. And then, uh, after that, I was like, all right, boys, let's go. And, uh, 88 was pretty solid year. I spent, I spent most, I spent the whole year in number three slot in the lineup. And then, uh, 89 was my best year ever in the major leagues. So it, it, you know, it was one of those learning lessons. And I think that, you know, being on the bench in 80, 86, you know, when I, when I had the uh, injury, I think that really helped out. Like you said, 88, 89, your best year. Uh, you were an all-star from 88 to 92, every one of those years. Uh, I want to talk about a couple of the, your teammates and, and one was a teammate of mine and I loved him because he took he took me under his wing when I was just a kid swinging hard and, you know, getting a lot of uh, a lot of flack from a lot of veteran guys. He kind of protected me. And when I when I mentioned him, you're going to laugh because he's a pretty good guy to be protected by. But I want to talk about Kevin Mitchell and Matty Williams. Uh, it, it was a big part of those those San Francisco Giants teams. Uh, Mitch, uh, I believe, won the the MVP in 89, you know, you still to this day, you see, you see it on classic games, the one handed catch in, in left field. Uh, but talk a little bit about Maddie and, and Kevin Mitchell. You know, those, those two guys were, you know, my boys, you know, I mean, we were, we were all in the middle of the lineup together and, uh, you know, they, uh, you know, I tried to get on for them and then they, they tried to drive me in and it was, it was, you know, from the get go, it was just a great relationship. And, you know, for me personally, uh, you know, having those two guys in the lineup was awesome. Um, Kevin came over in a trade from San Diego. That's how we got him. Matt Williams came through our minor league system and, uh, you know, he, uh, he spent a few years in the minor leagues, but then when he got to the big leagues, he set the world on fire. So, you know, having those two guys in the lineup really gave us a huge presence offensively. And, uh, you know, we could kind of put up some runs in a hurry. Uh, jumping to 89, obviously that's the Bay Bridge. Um, you end up being the NLCS MVP of, of that 
series. Uh, where were you? What do you remember when, when that earthquake hit? Well, uh, we had just got through. Um, well, we hadn't got through yet. Take that back. We were still running sprints in the outfield. And, um, you know, it sounded like the F-15 flew over. And so I, like, looked up. And about the time I looked up, um, the light towers were just swaying back and forth. And I'm like, oh, God, this is not good. And, uh, the you know, the the wave came through the stadium. And it was it was pretty violent. I mean, it was, it was almost like knock-you-down type violence. And, you know, for me personally, you know, being from Louisiana, I hadn't been around too many uh, earthquakes. Um, and that was one that I really did not want to be involved with. But uh, sure enough, it, it was there. And, you know, we all of a sudden you look up, and you know, the, the game is not going to be played. You know, talk about World Series and the cracking candlestick. And, uh, you know, then they got to fix it. And it's it's just I mean it's a it's mass pandemonium out there. Plus on top of that, you know you had so many uh, people that lost their lives. Um, you know the the freeway over there in Oakland had collapsed, and so it was it was a a big 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 deal. Yeah, that we had Gary Thorne on the program. He was covering that, uh, you know, on the on the uh, TV side. And he talked about yeah. it. He said it was it was unbelievable. I'd never been anything quite like it. Uh, I I grew up my high school and college. I was in Southern California, and I had been through a couple, you know, earthquakes. And it became to a point where it wasn't a really big deal. You know, it the the, the shelves would shake a little bit, glass might fall off, but we kind of just you know on, on the West Coast, it's like no big deal. That was a little bit of a different story. I mean, that was something I've never witnessed that, that level, you know, that, that destructive of an earthquake, but it had to be yeah. something, uh, that 89 yeah, it was, season. It was, you- it was pretty bad, you know, being out there and, and going through it, you know, and then like, like you said, you know, I mean, you know, I, I get it, you know, you know, people that, that have been out on the West coast, majority of their lives. And, and they, they, for the most part, you kind of, I mean, you kind of laugh it off when the truth, but uh, there was no laughing this one off. This one, this one was not good. Uh, another thing that happened to you in 89, you were there. And I witnessed uh, Tom Browning had a similar injury. Uh, I don't think as extreme. But you were on the field when, when Dave Dravecki, uh, that incident happened. What was that like? So we were in Montreal. And, um they had a runner on first base. Dave was in a stretch, and he goes to throw the ball to home plate, and you could just hear you could just hear a pop. It sounded like a twenty-two going off, and uh, uh, he went straight to the ground. And the ball, believe it or not, went in between home plate and first base and rolled into the Expos dugout. And I went straight to the mound. I was the first person there, and you know by that time everybody's running out there and I just told Dave, I said, Dave, you got to breathe. I know it's hurting, buddy. You got to breathe. I held his arm to, uh, you know, keep it in place. So it wouldn't kind of, I guess you want to say dangle. And, uh, 
like I said, you know, I'm a big outdoorsman and, uh, I've, I've felt that kind of mushy feeling before and it's, it's not good. And, uh, that's what Dave had and come to find out, you know, he had, he had basically cancer in his arm and, uh, you know, the, the, the arm gave way and, uh, let's see, he, uh, he wound up getting it amputated, uh, later on. So your giant career, uh, you signed as a giant in 1985. You, you play there through 93. And then you go to Texas in 94. What were the factors in, in you going to Texas? And, you know, you come up as a kid with the Giants. You were there a long time. Uh, was that a difficult choice, having to leave? And, and I don't know. How, how did you feel about it at the time? It, it was definitely difficult, um, you know, because I was trying to sign with the Giants the whole the whole year of 1993. I was trying to sign a multi-year deal, and I told the Giants I would take a lot less money, you know, if I could be, you know, a Giant for life. And uh, I was getting a lot of uh, flack from the uh, from the owner that was doing the negotiations, and uh, so it never did kind of get worked out and so in the end believe it or not they told me hey it's probably a good idea if you go uh and try the free agent route and i was like that's not a good sign when you're told to go to free agent route so uh you know i wound up you know working out a deal with texas i went over there and uh you know we spent five years in texas and we won the first ever championships uh, that the Rangers had ever won. Uh, they had been in existence for quite a while, uh, even as Washington senators and, uh, had not won, uh, a, a championship. And so, uh, you know, that that was a pretty, pretty proud moment for me personally is, is knowing that, you know, we brought championships to the, to the Dallas area. Go to Texas, 94 to 98, hit 304 times. Uh, your first year in Texas, you're an all-star. Um, and this is interesting, and I've heard you speak on this a little bit before. Uh, Palmero Clark it seems like you were replacing him wherever you went. It was kind of like one of you was replacing the other one. Yeah, yeah, and oh. you know, I mean, th- just the way it worked back then. Uh, you know, every time we were free agents. You know, the two of us, it seemed like the only team that was was out there was the team that the other guy was playing on. And, uh, you know, hey, look, you know, it, it's it's a business. And, you know, uh, there, was, there was a time where he took a lot of exception to, uh, you know, the business side of things. And I said, you know, Rafi, I said, sorry, buddy, that's what it is. It's the business end of things getting you. And, uh, you know, hey, look, we swapped teams a few times. You know, he had a he had a, a career. I had a career, and you know, we just just made it do. Yeah, the exception thing. Taking an exception, I, I I don't I don't understand that. It's like, all right, I sign here. They give me an opportunity. I have big years for me. I got to go somewhere else. That's life, and that like you said, it's the business of the game. We have a short window in our life uh, to make a career out of it, to earn a living, and sometimes it's not all perfect, but but life ain't perfect either. So 99, yeah, you're off to Baltimore. Right. Uh, you play in Baltimore, but you end up, uh, yeah, 99, 
the Baltimore season. And then in 2000, uh, you start off with Baltimore uh, and you end up finishing up with St. Louis. And, and this is the question I have. You've had a hell of a career to this point. <laughs> and you hit, this is similar to, to Paul Molitor. And I asked Polly the same question. I said, Polly, what the hell are you doing retiring? You hit th- he hit three-something his final year. I looked at it. It, it brought back uh, memories of the Molitor. It's like you hit 319. Most of us, us normal guys, we retire when we hit 223. But you hit, you hit 319, and that's it for, for the thrill. He's gone. What happened? How, why'd you quit? Yeah. So, um, so you know, we, we were in, in Baltimore, and it, it wasn't looking too good. And uh, uh, I, we have a, a son. He's now 25, but back then he was, he was a little guy. And, um, you know, he was autistic. And so we were seeing a lot of improvement from him during the offseason, you know, when I was around a lot more. And I had had 15 years in the major leagues, um, pretty much done all I wanted to do. Um, and you know, it was getting to be about that time to be, you know, dad and hubby and father. And, uh, you know, I had those responsibilities. So, you know, in the middle of that, I get traded to, to St. Louis. And when I got traded, I was, I was actually swinging the bat really well. And, uh, it just carried over into St. Louis. I wound up hitting, I don't know, 350 for the last three months of the year. And uh, we made the playoffs, and we came up a little short against the Mets um, to get to the World Series. But, uh, you know, I, I talked to Tony La Russa, who was my manager, and he said, you know, hey, look, you know, uh, Mark McGuire's having knee surgery, and he's going to be our first baseman next year. And So if you're going to stay here in St. Louis, you know, you're going to have to be a utility guy or an outfielder. And I go, oh, that's the old dog new tricks thing. So I started looking to see what was out there free agent wise. And it was uh, Milwaukee and Pittsburgh. And at the time, those teams were not really that good. And I said, you know what, if I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out on top. I'm not going to go out trying to climb the mountain. I'm going to go out at the top of the mountain. And, uh, and that's what I did. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to, to not have to look back and say, you know, what did I do? But then again, I made the right choice and I know it. That's that's cool because I, I I think you know people don't understand a a lot of careers end and there's not too much closure if you can honestly look in the mirror when you're done and say I'm done and I'm okay with it yeah. I I think yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of uh I don't know I think it's just a cool thing to be able to do that and be okay and and not to look back and not even slightly have the what ifs you know you got the right. what ifs a lot of people have that but. The fact that you said, hey, I was done. And still to this day, you can say, and I know I was right. That That's a pretty cool thing. It gives you a lot of peace. Yeah. It's a lot of peace. Right yeah, it there. does. It does. You you are definitely correct. And, you know, you know, I was very fortunate, as were you, you know, to, you know, have been a major league baseball player. But <clears throat> on the flip side of that, too, is. Um, you know, we have a limited window and you even mentioned it. We have a limited window of when, you know, we can do our thing. And I did, I went out there and I did my thing and, you know, I'm not looking back on it. I'm looking ahead. Uh, you know, now, you know, 20 years later, you know, sitting here and, and did I make the right decision? Did I made the right decision because my son's doing so much better now. 
Very cool. I'm glad to hear that too. Um, you mentioned you're working for the San Francisco Giants. A few years back, I, I did a. Uh, I worked for the Oakland Oakland A's for a couple of years. I was a special assistant to to Billy Bean. I'd go see, you know, I think it's similar to what you're doing. I'd go see our A ball affiliate. I'd, I'd go see our Double A. I'd get uni. I'd work with the infielders. I really, uh, it was pretty rewarding. You know, I had a good group uh, back then, uh, guys, five or six guys from that A ball team I worked with are in the big leagues. Not that I'm not giving any credit to myself, but. I'm just saying it, it was a cool thing working with the young guys, the minor league guys that are still in that learning process and trying to, if I can just give them an inkling or, or just a little piece of something I learned through my career that can maybe uh, speed it up a little bit for them. Uh, that was cool. And it's not that anybody had to know except for, for whoever I was working with and myself, I, I, I enjoyed it. I, I had a lot of fun with it at the time. I had some kids that, you know, it ended up, I was missing too much time um, with my boys missing their baseball season. They wanted me at spring training. So I only did it for a couple of years. It was pretty cool, but I, I just want to touch on the game today. Recently, there's a lot been made about the pitching and you know i've been asking and i've done a lot of you know shows about what are my what are my thoughts on it to me it's a generational thing i i look at the 2021 athlete and i think it's 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 the i think it's the best athlete from a physicality standpoint we've seen yet yet even from 15 or 20 years ago these kids today are coming in ready they've been training since they're 15 years old i think the speed is faster than it's ever been i think pitchers are throwing harder but i think it's like anything it's a generational thing the pitchers get better the hitters get better they're talking about oh the pitching's too good this isn't something that just happened out of the blue if you study the game of baseball historically we go through when the hitting is prevalent and the offensive numbers are high, then we go through a pitching dominant era to just simply say, oh, the, they're throwing too hard. Let's move the mound back. To me, a purist, I laugh. I'm like, are you kidding me? It's like, you know, I'd be sitting there willing it and I'm facing Randy Johnson and my dad would be talking about Steve Carlton. My answer to him was, oh, Steve Carlton was nothing compared to Randy Johnson. Oh, yeah, Brett, you know, and dad and me would argue. I'd argue with my grandfather about Bob Feller versus Randy Johnson. Great arguments. Wish I could have them today. But I, I just see a big discrepancy right now. I see the great hitters uh, still hitting 320, still hitting 330. But I see the rest of the league, it's kind of like 220 is okay now. I see, I see, and I know you've seen this too. There's more people hitting one something that I've ever seen in the history since I've been on this planet. I just want to get your take on it. It's like I'm looking at Tatis, I'm looking at Acuna Jr., uh, I'm looking at Vladimir Guerrero Jr., and I'm going, are these guys facing different pitchers than the guys hitting 167, or are they just have or do they just have a better approach? I want to get your thoughts on on the game today and and the discrepancy and why so many guys are hitting hitting two hundred. You know that's that that right there is the the thousand million dollar question here lately. Um, you know, for me personally, um, and I'm just I'm I'm not going to hide it. I've I've told everybody I'm not shying away from this. 
I don't see the I don't see the work ethic. Um, you know, if if I was hitting two twenty, which I never did in my life, you bet your ass I'd be in that in that batting cage till I'm blue in the face swinging a baseball bat. And you know, I'm gonna be making some adjustments. I'm gonna I'm gonna do something different than what I'm doing now because it is not working. And these these guys now, I mean, and, and I see it when I go work with them in San Francisco or wherever it might be. Um, you know, they'll take, you know, 15, 20 swings and they're like, see you later. And I'm like, where are you going? And they're like, oh, I got this. And I was like, no, you don't have it because you're hitting a freaking buck 30. You know, it's like, hey, get in the cage and work on what you need to work on to get better. But it's but but I'll, I'll play devil's advocate. But but Will, I've got great exit velocity. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, exit velocity. There's a, there's another one for you. Um, and that's a, go ahead. I I I laugh because you know people people you know come up with some of these things you know and, and there's always these new terminologies for this and that and and they you know long thing and all that and I. You know, I told him, I said, you know, if people paid attention to like, to like launch angle and all that craziness back in the day, I said, you'd have a guy like Tony Gwynn that would never play because all he did was hit like rocket ground balls through the infield. So, you know, his launch angle would be a minus something or another, but all he did was just hit. He just hit. And, uh, you know, to to watch to watch some of these guys now, I just it, it really. I mean, I'm I'm serious, and I'm I'm in the sport, you know, but it it kind of turns my stomach. Well, and and it's something I was watching, and this is probably about a month ago. It, it's how it's interpreted on on how the media interprets it as well. It's uh, Giancarlo uh, Stanton. He was having a, he was raking. He had about a 10 day period where he hit eight homers and, you know, drove in 14, hit 400 for that. And they were, they were, you know, oohing and on about what, what a great run he was on. And all they could talk about was his exit velocity. And I'm sitting there going, are, are you kidding me? Are you shitting yeah. me right now? We're talking yeah. about exit velocity. Why, why do we care how hard that ball that just hit the facade is going? I understand for the fans, it, it's a cool thing. You like to see numbers. You know, you like to see how hard the guy's throwing. Yeah, I, I get that from an entertainment value. But what are we teaching when we're just talking about how about, how about he's raking? He just hit his eighth jack in his 12th game. Uh, the Yankees yeah. are set, you know, they're nine and one in this state. No, it's about, did you see he hit that ball? 114.8. And I'm going. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, and you know what? I mean, it, it kind of filters down. Well, I mean, it doesn't kind of, it definitely does. Um, you know, guys, pitching wise, they talk about spin rate and all that craziness, you know, and, you know, I'm, I stand in the batter's box against some of these guys when they're throwing bullpens and stuff, and they'll turn around and, you know, because they got cameras on them and these laptop computers are out there and all that craziness, and they'll turn around and they'll ask a guy, hey, what was the spin rate on that one? You know, and my answer to them is, hey, uh, I'm just letting you know one thing right now from my end, all right, I'm, you know, 60 feet 
uh, six inches down here. If you keep throwing that thing out over that white plate, it doesn't matter what the spin rate's going to be because it's going to leave this ballpark in a hurry. You know, you better you better do a better job of hitting the corners, mixing up speeds and stuff like that, and not worrying about spin rate. And it's the same thing like we talked about with launch angle and all that. But it is the way that the game is kind of going. It's this analytical, statistical thing that they they are trying to quantify something that you and I, Brett, did for a living and we did with gut instinct. Yeah, you know what you know what high spin rate is? That's a nasty breaking ball. That's what that's what high spin rate is. And, and I, I sit here and, and you know they want to make a big deal about this uh, you know this spider tack whatever they're that, that the pitchers are supposedly putting on the ball like like it's the first time in the history of baseball any pitcher has ever put on the ball and and I'm, and I'm sitting there and I'm going yeah okay you're right you. you you've got better super glue than we did 10 years ago yeah. or 15 years ago. Yeah. I said, the only reason you're coming up with this now is because you track spin rate. So when somebody's spin rate is way higher than the norm. Oh, right now. Oh, Oh, that's gotta be that spider tact or, or he's got yeah. a great break ball or he's using yeah. a piece of the Manny Moda stick that, that a lot of guys in our day used to just kind of get a little better grip on that breaking ball so they could break it off a little harder. But yeah, we can go it. on and you on. Got it. We, yeah, we can go on and on for days about this. But <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, it's hysterical, too. And you and I could talk about this till we're blue in the face. But, I mean, you know – you know, some of these guys are like, oh, well, what about the, you know, the pitchers cheating today and all that sort of stuff. And I, I, I'm not shy about it. I'll tell I'll flat out come out and tell you. We've been cheating for 150 years, all right? The Astros right. just got caught, all right? Right. In our yeah, day, right. you got caught, you got drilled. So you better not get caught. Right. And it's an eye for an eye, and that's the way the game should be monitor that's that's how it has to be policed uh, i laugh about this this astro thing you brought up the astros it's like i thought i thought they did a, a real bad job how they pr'd it i i think to come out and read a script and to tell tell the world you're sorry i thought that was kind of weak it wasn't a man-to-man <laughs> moment for me that being that being said that being said uh. they got they got caught and yeah. there's a price there's yeah. a price to be paid for that. There's probably 14, 15 other teams doing a similar thing, but the trash can thing. I laugh. You think if I'm playing second base or you're playing first base and we hear in a big league clubhouse a trash can being banged for breaking ball, you think we might be on to that within maybe two pitches? You hit the nail on the head right there, my friend. They report it like uh, like it's at a little league game, and, and the coach is uh, yelling "line drive," and that means fastball, and "go with it" means change up. <laughs> this is the big leagues. I'm gonna. It's gonna be one pitch. I hear something I don't want to hear. I'm gonna go into the mound, and I'm gonna talk to my closer for this. For this, it's, it's, I'm gonna have Norm Charlton on the mound. I'm gonna say, Norm, mix up your signs right now because I want to see if they're picking your pitches. Okay, That's if right. I see one guy crossed up, the next guy's getting hit in the neck. A look into the dugout. Are we good? Okay, let's yep. move on. Yep. Next. We're good. We're good. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, I, I had that, believe it or not, and he was the opposition. 
but I, I respected him. I had that discussion with Mike Sosha, and I'm like, Mike, why do you go out to the mound so much? Because, I mean, if if like they'd give up one hit or maybe two walks or back-to-back hits, Mike would always go out to the mound. And I'm like, why are you going out to the mound so much? And he says, I'm trying to break up the rhythm that the hitters have on the other side of the field. And I was like, man, that makes so much sense right there. You know, and people don't talk about it no more, you know. And, you know, for me personally, I was like, that's freaking smart right there. And, you know, I tried to do that a little bit later on in my career too. You know, go out to the mound every now and then and slow the inning down so that, you know, we wouldn't have our butts handed to us the whole time, you know. And you bring up Sosha. He he was on the podcast uh, a while back. You're right when you say smart. You know, I always respected Mike Sosha. We had some early 2000s, that American League West that I was in. Angels were a big part of that. They won the World Series in 2002. Always respected him, his teams, how they played the game, especially how they ran the bases. But I got a chance to sit down with him and talk. And because he managed through 2019 – he was able to really, in layman's terms, understandable uh, to everybody, uh, uh, the analytics of baseball and what works and what doesn't work. It really interesting how he explained it. And, and like you said, you had that moment with Sosh where you said, wow, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I pride myself on I've heard everything. I can debate you on anything. And he really made me have one of those moments where I said, wow, that's really smart. It's a really interesting listen to how he explains the game and how it's changed since his playing days through his early managing through 2019. And uh, it, yeah, like you said, I think the word that comes to my mind as well was really smart, really smart takes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And, and you know what, I mean, you know, you, you even, you even mentioned it right there, but I mean, the game, <clears throat> the game has not changed. All right. I mean, it's the, still the same exact game as when we were little kids and what these people are doing that are trying to, you know, let's say change up terminology and stuff like that. You're not, you're not changing the game. You, you, it's just how you're interpreting the game. And uh, personally, I, I don't see it. I don't see it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not buying into it. How about all the rule changes? You like them? Hate them. <laughs> I, I, t- I, I take offense. Hate them. I'm, I'm exactly like you. I'm a baseball purist. And God almighty, some of these stupid-ass rule changes kill me. Well, and here's one that I really – I take offense to. I really do, being a second baseman. Because as a second baseman of my career, uh, that's where I separate myself from the average second baseman. And it's how I do around the bag, late in the game, close game, big double play. And I'll use you for this. Will Clark trying to come get me. I used to love that. And I don't know if you remember this. This is my rookie year. No, no, my rookie spring training. It's 1991. (laughs) We're playing in Scottsdale. We're playing your Giants. And you're looking at me. You're giving me that look. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a kid. I'm 21 years old. I'm like, what the hell's Will looking at me like this for? Like, you're mad at me. Like, I'm going to come get you. And that's kind of what you're saying is, be ready for this. 
And I love that. I love when Gibson try to take me out. Because if I know if I do my job right, you you might be able to flip me, but I'm going to turn that double play and you're not going to hurt me. But I took a lot of pride in that as a second baseman. They took away the ability for the runner to take you out. And now anybody can turn a double play. You don't have to be a great second baseman. You got shortstops that can make the pivot. You know, that's always the thing is the one thing we get paid for as a second baseman is we got to work with our back to the runner. And that was separated the, the normal, the average from the elite. So I kind of take offense to that it's taken away the, how do we determine what a great second baseman is anymore? Because that's that's the main skill. Correct. You're definitely correct. And on top of that, you know, it, you kind of, you said it in different words, but, you know, kind of when I go around, I see these kids, I'm like, hey, son, um, you better use that second base bag as protection. You better not just stand straight up and down right over the top of the bag and expect nobody to hit you because somebody's got to come in there and wipe you out. And, um, you know, I get I get some of these kids that look at me like, like I'm, I'm talking, you know, a different language. I'm like, no, I'm serious. I'm serious. I'm I'm telling you right now. You get up to the major leagues. There's gonna be a guy that's gonna come and get you and wipe you out. And uh, you know, some of the kids just don't pay attention to that. And and this this goes right along this line of questioning. Uh, big fight you had, Akendo and Ozzy yeah. Smith. You're coming to get yep. him. You're coming to get him. Yep. Tell me about that yep. a little and bit. Then, you know, I, I tell everybody this story because everybody, everybody always wants to know why, why were we fighting and all that sort of stuff. Um, it actually precipitated the night before. Vince Coleman stole second and third when they were up by a lot. We were playing behind him at first base, and he stole second and third, um, you know, which, which as you well know, is a, a big-time no-no. And um, – you know, so Matt Williams and myself had quite a few choice words for Vince Coleman when he was standing on third base. And I basically told him, we are going to drill you tomorrow. And the pitcher that we had the next day did not live up to our expectations, and he didn't drill Mr. Coleman. So I was on first base, and it was late in the game, and we were up by a lot at that time. And so I said, you know what, if I got a chance, I'm going to go get somebody. And sure enough, the next pitch, they hit a ground ball to uh, Ozzie Smith and he goes, turn, turn a double play. And uh, I was getting down the line pretty good and wound up going a little bit out of my way and uh, made some good contact out there. And when I was getting up off the ground, uh, somebody hit me in the head. And then it was all hell broke loose after that. It was like game on. So, and you were one of the guys. You like to come in hard, but it, nothing like you know my my. Uh, I, I watch old clips of of Frank Robinson, Ooh. and uh, and uh, oh, my favorite. He was my hitting coach in Cincinnati. One of my favorite men, Hal McRae. And oh you my see god! Those, I was you just see, getting ready to say. You see those say, old if, tapes? Oh man! Some of if your audience gets a chance to Google, you guys need to Google Hal McRae takeout slides, 
and I'll it's, do it. I'll do that. Matter of fact, I actually did it for that young man I was telling you about that that stood over top of second base and and didn't move. And I, and I said, son, this is what's going to happen to you. And I showed him a Hal McRae takeout slide, and he like looked at me. He goes, "Was that legal back then?" I said, "You bet your ass it was." I said, "We went out of our way to get people, you know." And if if you did it sneaky enough. You could like grab people when you were going by them and yank them down and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I mean, you know, being a second baseman, when you have to rush a throw, there are some guys that are, that are very, very good under pressure. And you were definitely one of them, you know, so you could turn this, the, 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 the hard double play to turn. There are other guys that, they want the hell out of Dodge. They don't want to be anywhere near somebody bearing down on them. And those guys got that reputation, and we would actually kind of turn the game around by, by having those guys um, not be comfortable turning a double play. Will the Thrill, where did it come from? Who gave you the name? That would be Mike Kruko and Bob Brenly. Uh, they were – they were my two of my mentors, and just I mean, they they were a hoot in the clubhouse. They were great people to be around, and I was having a pretty good go of it in uh, spring training, uh, my my rookie year. And they said, "Well, if you're gonna do that, you better keep throwing this the whole time." And then all of a sudden, out of that comment, Will the Thrill got born. Uh, the death stare, the Will Clark stare. Uh, and, and I think you said it. Kruko also, he called it the Nooshler face. Yeah. Where'd that come yeah. from? Or was that, was that just you? No, it was just me. It was just being intense. But uh, my uh, my middle name is, is a family name, and it's Nooshler. And uh, so they, they always, needless to say, they always made fun of it and all that. And, and you know, it, it was what it was. And, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed those guys you know that they made they made being in the big leagues a lot of fun and they were guys exactly as you said before they took me under their wing and they showed me the right way to do it and the wrong way to do it and uh you know they saved me a lot of headaches um by being the true professionals that they are Candlestick Park. Explain to the people out there listening to the Boone Podcast. Explain Candlestick Park to people that don't really know. Well, you go to Candlestick Park, and I can just speak. Well, I'm going to let you explain it, and I'll tell you my view of being a visitor, never being a, on on the home team at Candlestick. Okay. All right. So, Candlestick Park is it it butted up to a mountain, and the wind would come off of the mountain and it would dive down into the, into the ballpark over by the third baseline left field corner. And at any given time, uh, I mean, it went from being just a very nice place to play a baseball game to being one of the most miserable places you've ever been in your life. And for me personally, um, you know, I was never, I mean, I'm from the South, so I was never really, you know, into, you know, cold weather and all that, but I got used to it real quick. And the one thing that, um, Roger Craig and also Al Rosen, who was our general manager, the one thing that they preached and they preached it till the cows came home was 
boys, we are going to use this to our advantage. And we did. And we played, we played a lot of night games and we played in miserable parts of the day and everything. And you just had to suck it up because the other team definitely did not want to be there. You're not kidding because the, the feeling you have when you're used to playing a nice pristine ballpark with the birds chirping, you go to candlestick middle of the summer. I mean, you're miserable and you're yeah, just standing yeah, in that box and, and that wins. It, it, you're right. It was an advantage when you're used to it, not maybe the conditions you like as a hitter. And I, and I found one thing there too. You better not watch anything you hit. I've hit some balls in left field there. I thought I hit 420 <laughs> feet that didn't go out. And I've hit pop-ups to right. And next thing I know, they're in the seats, and I'm going, whoo, how did that happen? <laughs> you are definitely correct. You are definitely correct. So we, you know, we prided ourselves. Matter of fact, we, it, was, it was one of the, one of the things that we talked about quite a bit was you know the San Francisco Giants catching pop-ups in candlestick and we literally every week in spring training we would shoot pop-ups and it was not to catch the ball it was to work on our communication and i had it explained to me and i was like what are you talking about and they're like you're going to see when you get to the stick and i'm like oh, okay and I mean, it, it was, it was unbelievable. So for, for those people that have never been there before, when you're at the stick and you know, it's one of those miserable nights, I mean, when the ball goes up, that's not where it's going to end up. I mean, there were, there were a few times, matter of fact, it, was, it happened twice in one week where the shortstop called it. I got it. I got it. I got it. And I caught the ball in foul ground over by first base. So, I mean, you know, at every time the ball went up, we had at least three or four guys chasing it, and we're all talking the whole time we're, we're chasing it. You got a beat on it? I'm okay. No, I'm not all right. It's blowing your way. You better watch out. And, and, you know, we really did a good job catching pop-ups. But the other teams that came in, it was absolutely hysterical watching some of these people try to catch a pop-up. And it's, it's, it is. It's simply known as the stick. There's not too yep. many. There's not too many That's, stadium names that we we shorten to that degree. Call it the stick. We don't call it candlestick. It's the nope. stick, and there's something to it's that. It's the stick. Yeah, it's the stick. All right, and, and you know what? I mean, it, it was it was, you know, as as you well know, because you know you played a lot and you played in in some some big time harsh environments. It was not a friendly place to be, but. Like I said, um, Al Rosen and Roger Craig didn't want it to be a friendly place. And that was what we did. We just used it to our advantage. And, and, and I'll tell this for the listeners. Uh, and they didn't have proper plumbing in the visiting dugout. They, uh, let me just, I'll let you guys leave it to your imagination. They had a urinal yeah. only, only. Yeah. Yes, yes, it was it was uh, definitely an interesting place to be. <laughs> All right, College Baseball Hall of Fame. Hey, there's too many to name. You got the Cape Cod League Hall of Fame, Mississippi State, Ted Wi- Ted Williams Hitters Hall of Fame, Louisiana Sports Hall of Fame. You got a lot of Hall of Fames for Mr. Clark, but uh, your numbers retired with the San Francisco Giants. A lot of guys. Uh, 
you know, get inducted to the to their franchise's uh, Hall of Fame. But get your number retired. Uh, that's a different level. That's a big deal. You're up there with McCovey and Bonds and and Mays. That's pretty 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 damn good company. Uh, tell me yeah, when you get the call. Yeah, tell me is. when you get the call and and uh, how cool that must have been. You know what? It's it, it was so cool. You know because the Giants had a. Uh, uh, policy of we're not going to put anybody up on uh, the wall um, without them being a Hall of Famer, and they kind of went away from that uh, a few years ago when they when they uh, you know put Barry Bonds's number up there, and uh, so I was like, huh, this might open up a little uh, you know deal for the thrill here, and uh, sure enough, they came to me a, a few years ago and said hey, we'd love to you know, retire your number and, and have you be, you know, a giant for life. And I said, you know what, that's, that's what I wanted to do, you know, back in, in 93 when, you know, when I was negotiating with everybody. And, uh, so we have not, believe it or not, we have not had the ceremony yet because, you know, COVID put a, put a shellacking on everything. Um, so the, the ceremony was actually supposed to be last year. It got pushed back. Then this year they didn't kind of know what's going on. So we're going to have the ceremony next year. But, uh, you know, I told them it, it doesn't really matter. I mean, this is, this is going to be, this is, you know, my hall of fame and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm treating it as such and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. All said and done. What do you want to be remembered for? I told a lot of people this, and I mean, I am about as adamant of this as anything else. I came to the ballpark every day, ready to play and ready to kick your ass. And I wanted everybody to know that I did my job. I did my job the right way. And I was a professional doing it. And, you know, the, probably the biggest compliment anybody could give me was to say, Hey, you're a true pro. Awesome. Will Clark, I want to say thank you for coming on the Boone podcast. It was an honor. This is very cool. Great stuff. And what we do at the end of each and every Boone podcast is we bring Dan Levy, the voice of the podcast back on for a question from the fans. Dano guys, Mr. Clark. This, All right. this question comes from Frank in San Francisco, and he wants to know, Will, what is it like to spend time with Willie Mays? Oh, that is, that is a very good question. Uh, Willie Mays is, in my mind, the best ball player ever. And to have a chance to spend time with him um, in spring training – uh, also during the course of the season and to learn from him is it, it's, it's incredible the amount of information that comes out of that man. And, uh, you know, I've, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to call him my friend and, uh, you know, I can credit him with being one of the guys that influenced not only myself, but also hundreds of other major leaguers. And, uh, you know, there's there's a reason why he is the best ever. The greatest of all time. You heard it here from Will Clark. Willie Mays, the greatest of all time. Will Clark, thanks for jumping on the greatest podcast of all time. That would be the Brett Boone podcast.
You got that right. Thank you so much for having us, and uh, that was a lot of fun. It was it was great uh, reminiscing with, with Brett. Mailbag. Hi, Brett. You know what time it is? It's mailbag time, Dan. Indeed, it is. All right, Brett. This question comes from Dan in Chicago. And we just had Will Clark on, and I want to know, he just said that Willie Mays is the greatest of all time. Who do you think is the GOAT, and where does Willie Mays stack up to your greatest of all time? Well, it's so tough because of the generational thing, and uh, there's so many great players. You know, so many guys, like, guys that I never saw play. I I never, you know, I'm never going to see Mickey Mantle play. uh, I never got to see Babe Ruth play. I never saw Willie Mays play. These are all, obviously, some of the greatest of all time. If you, if you just look at numbers and compare them to their generation, and obviously I'm going to be a little biased by my time in the game, my generation, I'm going to say without a doubt, no one's even close. Uh, Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds. But I think there can be a great argument made for Willie Mays. I think a guy that doesn't get enough credit in the history of the game, he's known – you know, as the home run guy was Hank Aaron, man, he was so much more than a home run hitter. You know, if you're ever bored, walk through his career and, and his stats, pretty staggering. And especially he ran, he when he was younger, he, he stole a lot of bases. Just a complete great player. So I put Willie Mays in my top three or, or top four. Uh, and who knows? Is it Willie Mays? Is it Babe Ruth? Is it Barry Bonds? Is it Hank Aaron? Uh, it's tough to go wrong choosing one of those. And, and that's what makes baseball so great is uh, everybody's going to have a different opinion. But there's certain guys uh, that are, you know, there's no doubt about they're They're in that exclusive group of one of the greatest of all time. Both you and Will Clark are wrong. The greatest of all time is at the Boone 29. All right, back into the mailbag we go. This Cheer one, up, would you, Dan? This one is from Donnie at Houston, and he wants to know this one, Brett. Who had the best breaking ball you've ever faced? Best breaking ball. Okay, let me clarify what a great breaking ball is. Great breaking ball is a ball that comes out of the pitcher's hand and appears to be a fastball. So I'm going to go with John Smoltz for me personally. Uh, man, he'd, he'd throw that fastball out of, out of the same arm angle to the same location to the outside corner. And then when he'd throw the breaking ball, it'd be the same arm angle, same location as the fastball, only it would break off the plate. And I couldn't quit chasing it. I could not pick up the spin. Uh, that to me is what a great breaking ball is. So for, for Brett Boone, it was definitely John Smoltz on a consistent basis. But a lot of guys out there had great breaking balls. So there you have it. The best breaking ball will be John Smoltz. And the one who breaks Boone's balls the best is Dan Levy. And my name is Dan Levy. And I'm the technical director and producer of the Boone Podcast. The executive producer of the podcast is Rich Herrera. Digital content is all taken care of by Liz Landry. Thanks, Liz. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. We're going to do it again soon. We'll see you for the next one. Good night.